Hi, this is Chris Campbell, and welcome to the Food Institute podcast. Today, we will be speaking with Paul Mariani, a managing director with Mesero Financial's Investment Banking Group, with a focus on the mergers and acquisitions space in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. But first, whether you are a first-time listener or becoming something of a regular, we ask that you share this episode on your social media platforms. It really helps us expand our reach, and we appreciate it when you do so. So with all that said, I'll introduce Paul and start by asking how he's doing today. So how are you, Paul? Uh, I'm very well, and, and, and thank you for having me. We're very excited to have you on the show, and I think it would be a benefit for our listeners to get a little bit of background on you. So could you give a little bit of your history so that our listeners have an idea of where you're coming from? As you mentioned, uh, I'm a managing director uh, in Mesero's Investment Bank, uh, focusing on middle market M&A and capital formation transactions within the food, beverage, and agribusiness industry. Uh, I cut my teeth in banking about 20 years ago, working on public M&A equity and fixed income transactions at a large corporate and investment bank, uh, af after which time I later shifted uh, to the middle market and in 2006 uh, began focusing exclusively on the food industry. And could you also give a little background about Mesero? Yeah, Mesero is an 83-year-old independent employee-owned diversified financial services firm based in Chicago, uh, and we have 19 other offices located throughout the U.S. and globally. Uh, we provide a variety of services within what I'd call three major business units. Uh, those include capital markets and investment banking, uh, which is uh, sales and trading, public finance, real estate, uh, investment banking. Uh, we also have an investment management group, uh, which includes uh, equity, uh, fixed income and currency management, as well as an alternatives business that focuses on private equity and direct real estate investing. And thirdly, we have an advisory services group, which includes our wealth management practice. Uh, we also have folks focused on compensation and benefits and other investment strategies. Uh, in terms of the investment banking group, uh, we're comprised today of approximately 40 professionals uh, located in Chicago, New York, and London, uh, where we cover nine core industry verticals, including the food, beverage, and agribusiness uh, vertical. Uh, we are what I'd call middle market and lower middle market focused, which at least in terms of the food value chain, I define as working either with private equity or family founder owned businesses that typically generate somewhere between $5 million and $50 million of EBITDA. Excellent. So it sounds like you are the man for today's conversation. So let's dive right in. Uh, the coronavirus pandemic has really upended markets across the globe, but food's in an interesting space. And grocery retailers and food manufacturers really benefited early on, but those gains seem to be slowing down. And food service operators are still struggling, especially with the resurgence of COVID. So I was wondering if you could give us an overview of the current mergers and acquisitions landscape with these factors in mind. It's certainly been an interesting time pre-COVID. You know, the, the M&A market had frankly never been stronger. Certainly the, the early inning months of March and April, we, we saw a dramatic slowdown in transaction activity and, and the availability of, of leverage uh, to finance some of these transactions. But I will tell you, activity has really rebounded since that time period. Frankly, seen opportunities and the willingness of prospective clients to field telephone calls and introductions regarding a potential transition or transaction. So that's been very encouraging. And I think that activity pickup frankly, has been, you know, getting sequentially better month to month. I would say, you know, food service clearly took it on the chin in the midst of COVID and has really been forced to sort of pivot their strategies. Um, so there's certainly 
continue to be pockets of distress in food service. For example, if you're a, a prime purveyor of you know beef or seafood products serving the white tablecloth restaurant segment, you know the outlook there, frankly, is is going to be a bit grim here for a while. You know we do expect to see improvement. Um, I'd say on the food service distribution side, those serving sort of the QSR and fast casual channels have rebounded significantly. In fact, um, you know we're very active in food distribution, even though we take a value chain approach, but we just we happen to spend a lot of a lot of time there. And we have both clients and you know prospects that we've talked to. For the most part, they've all been up year over year, sort of June, July, and August, and I'm I'm guessing September too. So so that's been encouraging. And and I'll probably spend a lot of time talking about food service only because it's been so disrupted. Um, so it, it may come up here as we kind of move through the questions. I think the other thing we're seeing, um, and this has been both within food and outside of food, uh, as I alluded to earlier, you know, many family founder-owned businesses that had never contemplated a transaction um, previously are now seeing, you know, how a black swan event can, you know, compromise the whole of their net worth. And what we're what we're seeing is that owners are far more open to a liquidity event now more than ever. And a lot of those conversations you know, center around, um, you know, potentially doing a non-control transaction, partnering with institutional capital providers and, you know, de-risking the, the family or the owner ba- personal balance sheet. And, um, and, and the willingness there to, you know, transact has definitely been very encouraging from an M&A perspective. And that's very aligned with our firm strategy. We actually, you know, the hallmark of what we do is work not only with private equity firms that are buying and selling portfolio companies, but we also spend a lot of time directly calling family founder-owned businesses. So uh, it's always been core to our strategy, and um, the, the the volume of those phone calls in the last call it couple of months has been staggering in a good way. I guess the other thing I'd add is you know well-capitalized players have certainly pivoted toward opportunistic tuck-in transactions. I, I think, you know, we're seeing certainly less transformative transactions in the marketplace. And, and that really tapered off in, in 2019. Big food sort of shifted to doing strategic add-ons that kind of help expand the portfolio and, and bolster sort of the, uh, the the typical growth you see in the, in, in the food space, which historically, you know, outside of emerging brands has been sort of, you know, 2 to 3%. I think on the retail side, we're also seeing some encouraging signs there just from a consumer perspective. I think when COVID really hit us hard in, in March and April, and maybe even into May, there was sort of this temporary reversion to the center of the store, conventional and heritage brands. And I think now that you know we're all much more accustomed to the impacts of COVID and wearing masks, et cetera, I know personally, I'm, I'm not finding myself rushing through the store to get in and out. And I think that's what, that, what had been going on quite a bit um, when COVID you know, first started hitting us really hard. Uh, you know, the other thing we're seeing is, you know, multiples for what I'd call center of the fairway food businesses do continue to be quite strong. And I think part of that is, you know, I think deal flow quality has always been sort of, oh, I don't know, but let's call it has had plateaued, you know, even pre-COVID. And so naturally that the quality of deals has taken a hit in, in the midst of the pandemic. But what that's done, quite frankly, is, you know, we're seeing fewer, again, center of the fairway transactions. So that's actually supporting elevated multiples by historical standards. Private equity and strategics are still eager to find strong fits for their portfolio companies and the, and the, broader, the broader businesses. And uh, so that, that's, that too is keeping multiples, I'd say, in a relatively elevated state. And, and in addition to all that, what, what you find is you know, buyers just have more bandwidth. So they're more eager to find the deals. And um, that, that has, has been um, a boon for a relative boon for, for the M&A market. Um, you know, staying on the subject of multiples and valuation, obviously 
leverage and credit is a big part of that, particularly for private equity firms. The good news is I think the credit markets had stabilized far sooner than we had expected. Um, I will say it feels like, you know, leverage multiples are down maybe a turn to a turn and a half, which obviously requires private equity buyers to put more equity into transactions, which of course impacts their returns. But what we've seen is they're aggressive and they're they're frankly more than willing to do that for for companies that are attractive to them. And as I said earlier in the in, in the discussion, you know, the the inbounds for bankers such as myself are, are way up both on the private equity side and then again from a direct calling family founder business perspective. I think the real uh, interesting telltale going forward is going to be as we get through the the late fall in the winter months. Uh, particularly given the impact of cold weather in, in the northern states like the one I live in, um, I just think you're going to really find that consumers aren't going to be as willing to dine out. I know we're putting up tents, you know, we're doing, you know, owners of, of restaurants are certainly trying to get as creative as they're able to. And so so that's encouraging and, and certainly convenience and takeout, I think, will just, just continue to be strong. I guess I'd add one more leg to this stool in terms of kind of what we're seeing out there. And, and that would be sort of, you know, what categories continue to be hot. We try to take a thematic approach to how we focus on the market. Like I said, we're value chain oriented, but we do try to be thematic and thoughtful when we're out mining opportunities. So snacking, for example, even though there's much less of an on-the-go dynamic, in, in part you know, because corporate foot, tra- foot traffic excuse me, is down, um, so snacking businesses are, are, are continue to be a, a very attractive category for potential buyers. Uh, cold chain, storage, and logistics, um, we're seeing huge demand for a shift in that landscape. I think indulgent food items, particularly on the premium end of the uh, continuum, are, continue to be very attractive spaces as well as seasonings and flavors. And then of course, the the, the typical clean label, better for you, ethnic foods, those all, those all continue to be very, very good categories for both buyers and sellers. And, and we're seeing a ton of activity across uh, all the above. So with all of those different data points uh, in mind, what kind of opportunities do you see in the current market for companies and investors that are looking to acquire businesses? And what about on the other side, those that are looking to sell? You know, it probably goes without saying that I think the biggest disrupting factor here is, you know, travel limitations is certainly making um, in-person meetings very difficult, on-site due diligence. There's lots of technology out there. Services that are provided to help facilitate a an interactive virtual facility tour all done on video online to, you know, where the travel limitations come into play. There are what I call these COVID consultants that facilitate an expedited process so that, for example, if we were looking to buy or sell a business in Canada, for example, you know, these these consultants have a, a niche in, in uh, swiftly facilitating um, the, the travel uh, needs of potential buyers in, in this case. I think the other thing we're naturally seeing is, you know, processes just, you know, they're getting pro, they're prolonged. I mean, there's no question about that. And we always say, you know, time's never on your side. We're always trying to be as expeditious and efficient as we can when we're selling businesses in particular. But we are still seeing, you know, strategics and PE owned portfolio companies um, continue to be aggressive on getting transactions done relatively quickly. I think one of the things we're doing as bankers and advisors to our clients is while we'll still potentially run a broad process, most have become rather tailored and targeted. We also, quite frankly, typically give consideration to preemptive situations. Um, I don't want to say they've maybe become more of a norm, but we always look at a preemptive 
opportunity as a way to increase the probability to close and avert any sort of potential deal fatigue that business owners may be feeling in much longer processes. So that's, those are some of the things we're seeing just from a process perspective. In terms of buyers and sellers, you know, it's, it's, it's a good time to be a well-capitalized buyer, as I've indicated, you know, earlier in the conversation. I mean, if you're very focused on acquiring sort of a smaller family or founder-owned business and you've got a pretty strong balance sheet, it's, it's, it's a very opportunistic time to go ahead and, and pursue transactions of that, of that nature. You know, we always throw this number around, the whole dry powder thing kind of goes without saying, but, you know, as you can see from a variety of sources in the marketplace, like Prequin, for example, you know, there, there is about... $1.5 trillion of dry powder on the sidelines, which is just a staggering figure. And that's, of course, helping buyers continue to not only be you know, relatively aggressive in processes, but also over-equitize those deals if needed. Uh, and then I think the last thing we're sort of seeing you know, buyers do more often is increase the use of mezzanine and other subordinated forms of capital to finance the transactions to sort of plug the uh, the leverage and valuation gaps. On the sell side, you know, I, I think I said this earlier and I apologize for being a little bit duplicative, but like I said, sellers are thinking more now than ever about transactions in part from COVID. And they're also thinking about it from a tax perspective and what may come down the pike here um, if there's an administration that comes in and has a different tax policy than the current one. Um, so I think the openness to transacting, I think, as I said earlier, non-control deals, we're, we're having a lot of conversations about doing non-control equity recaps in part to help sort of turbocharge an M&A strategy. But, you know, valuation gaps do exist from a sell side perspective. There's no question about it. And, you know, those impacted negatively by COVID are certainly becoming more structured, as I indicated earlier. We're, you know, we're, we're using earnouts more often than ever. We're talking about things like seller paper, which you never really had to have had to discuss in the market before. So those are some of the things we're seeing. But, um, you know, people are getting creative and finding ways to get transactions over the finish line. So we kind of talked about some of the challenges regarding COVID-19 in the mergers and acquisitions space, but I'd like to kind of dive into that a little bit more. So I'm wondering what kind of challenges are strategics facing when they're searching for companies to acquire during this time? Well, you know, I don't want to over-talk, over-discuss um, the food service component, but, you know, that's just front and center and that that's created um, a number of challenges. Um, but we're seeing participants in that part of the value chain certainly um, or that channel, I should say, certainly explore new strategies to grow within food service and diversify the base, getting creative on how to pursue uh, direct consumer strategies and other retail strategies. So that, that, that's, that's been an interesting sort of development, if you will. I think, you know, clearly I, I spend a lot of time in protein. So, so we're seeing this firsthand, you know, large scale, <clears throat> excuse me, labor intensive, low automation businesses like meatpacking and portion control. They're going to continue to be challenged with this sort of human health and safety issue. You know, that's clearly resulted in significantly lower volumes, less efficient operations. And I think based on all that, we're going to see a little bit of a shift in terms of how they strategically continue to operate in those areas. I did mention before increased demand for cold storage. That's, you know, that's tied in part to the surge in online food shopping, you know, less dine-in, more takeout, higher food delivery volumes. And that's sort of creating a logistical need for for many of these facilities to be in closer proximity to where the consumer is. I'd also say that, you know, we're, we're seeing or, or hearing that strategics, as an example, are a little less willing, excuse me, to pursue opportunities that are too far afield from their core strategies or pay outlier multiples for those targets. So they may, you know, express interest in a situation, but they're, they're not necessarily going to overpay, if you will, but still know that they got to use M&A to move the growth needle in food. We want to make sure we're very focused on certainty to close and buyer behavior when we're on the sell side. 
in, in trying to stay ahead of that. And, and that's, that's, a, that's a big determinant in a successful transaction, particularly in this environment. We're seeing results there, which is good, but um, we're also seeing, for example, strategics that are in the midst of a process, whether it's limited or broad, that don't have a financing contingency will oftentimes trump a private equity firm that is using leverage or a highly structured transaction to get the, de- to get the deal done. So another thing I'm interested in is just the roles of private equity and family offices and has their role changed since the start of COVID? And if so, how? That's a great question. Um, You know, I I think their role has pivoted to some extent. I don't know that it's changed a lot. I mean, PE firms are obviously very active and they support a vibrant M&A market and that continues to happen. I think what we've seen across the board is private equity firms are coming up with their own pivot to strategies, if you will, or flexibility. They're providing, in many cases, more flexible capital. You know, Traditional buyout firms that would never contemplate a non-control transaction are now saying that they're open to looking at non-control equity transactions. Um, so that th- those are all, I think, good developments. But yeah, they have a, a, a very important role, certainly in the broader market, just again, by the sheer amount of capital that's out there to be deployed. So we're, we're encouraged by that. And I think, as I also mentioned earlier, because they have more resources now, they're more willing to spend the time looking at opportunities that may line up either with legacy strategies or these renewed sort of flexible approaches to getting capital deployed. And, you know, that's just a resource thing. That's, they've got more resources to deploy. And, you know, whereas before when the impact wasn't so severe in terms of just general quality of deal flow, you know, bandwidth always became an issue. A lot of times firms are passing on opportunities, not because they don't like the business, but because they're drinking out of a fire hose, looking at a number of different scenarios. So, so that's something we're seeing there, but, um, but yeah, look, private equity will always have a very critical, critical role to the market. Um, I think the other thing we're seeing is low leverage focused firms are finding themselves with, let's call it a relative competitive advantage um, because the, we've shifted to this need for some more flexible structures. And I guess the last thing I'd, I'd add is, you know, special situations have sort of arisen recently, but I not at the magnitude I was expecting, certainly. So, you know, the special situations firms, even pre-COVID, in a lot of cases, um, had a sort of an added dimension of looking at like kind of, I don't want to say they changed their definition of special situations, but it was a much more broader, didn't have to be a highly distressed, you know, 363 sale process through bankruptcy or anything like that. So there's just this more of this holistic approach to how they can deploy capital in, in transactional situations. So I have a feeling I may have uh, an idea where you're going to go with this answer, but I'm just wondering, can you explain some of the risks you're seeing in the market, specifically in the U.S. market? At the risk of being repetitive, I, as I said earlier, I think the other shoe that drops is going to be this, you know, fall, winter period food service and, and the potential for a second wave. I mean, that that clearly remains a risk out there. And I think it's going to take to get into, you know, the middle of the winter of next year to have a true sense as to when we're sort of going to see sort of more stability in that channel. Um, that, that, that That's really a big one. But at the end of the day, the remaining undercurrents um, remain largely strong for for brands and private label packaged food. So what about at a global scale? Do you think that recent international tensions are going to cause companies to forego acquiring foreign businesses or will they try to limit their geographical exposure? Well, I think they're being forced to, I don't want to say limit their geographic exposure, but I think they're naturally limited just by way of by way of travel, for example. So yeah, I think there's certainly going to be some sort of a retrenchment, but look, the U.S., 
is a very vibrant economy, as we all know. Um, it's it's a very vibrant M&A market, and there are just tons of opportunities within food, beverage, and agribusiness here in the U.S. and, and globally, of course. So I think the biggest thing we're seeing is just sort of they're impeded on participating, if you will, in some of these auctions or certainly less willing travel across an ocean or two to, to, to take a look at opportunities if they don't have folks on the ground here. But, you know, we find a lot of folks obviously, you know, overseas have very significant U.S. operations. They have boots on the ground. So that mitigates it to some extent. So I think as those hurdles are lowered and, and we're seeing that in full disclosure, we've got a cross-border situation right now with one of our deals. And it's, it's, you know, it's a buyer halfway across the world in Asia and, you know, we're doing everything virtually and we're, you know, Thursday we're hosting a sort of a virtual sort of pre-due diligence meeting with the C-suite of that potential buyer. So, you know, look, technology is solving some of these global issues for the moment, but I'm not naive enough to think that anyone's going to be you know, buying businesses on a cross-border basis, sight unseen, that, that's definitely not going to happen. And I will definitely re, uh, reaffirm the fact that technology is helping out as we're able to do this podcast because of that. And it's something we've seen at the Food Institute as well, is that there has been this shift to technology and it has been helpful, but it's not all encompassing. It's not exactly the same. So I think we're on the same page there. Uh, I have one other question here. So in your own opinion, what is the better co uh, course of action for a company right now? Do you think it would be to engage in mergers and acquisitions, or do you think they should be somewhat conservative in acquiring new businesses in the current climate? Yeah, look, again, it's it's, it's an opportunistic time for for well-capitalized buyers. And and I, yeah, and, and, that, and that's why the nature of most of the discussions we're having is, is reflective of that, whether it's, you know, we want to go on the buy side. For example, uh, earlier in the year, we had a, um, uh, we have a client that effectively flipped from a sell side scenario to a buy side scenario. And now we're helping them do their first add on um, as an example. So I think we're seeing a lot of that being opportunistic, being patient, letting COVID hopefully work its way through so that we're at the point where we've got a vaccine and all the other things that have to happen. So we're operating in a, in a safer environment. Um, but we're finding ways around that. And technology is a big part of that. And risk appetite is a big part of that. And I think the other thing we're seeing too is, you know, a lot of, a lot of, particularly on the, the lower middle market end of the of size and scope of companies we're working with, they're more open now than, than they ever have been to, uh, to explore situations. So I think it's largely encouraging. I think it's both sell side and buy side driven. But yeah, look, I mean, when you wake up one day and you realize that the whole of your net worth is tied up in your business and that you know, you can see in some cases it evaporate overnight. That That's a scary thing for people. And I think diversifying uh, with the right partner uh, makes a ton of sense for, for all parties involved. One sector I think that we could talk about would be the agribusiness sector. And do you see any opportunities for M&A in this category? And if so, what kind of opportunities would those be? Yeah, we do. Um, we spend a lot of time uh, upstream uh, in agribusiness. Um, and, you know, look, there are pockets of healthy opportunities. And frankly, there's quite a bit of opportunity among, call it distressed or special situations players. You know, the commodity markets had a, it was a really tough ride through the summer for agricultural and livestock uh, commodities. And um, there were just sequential declines. I think at one point we were hitting somewhere between five and 10 year lows for lean hogs, as an example, which is, you know, sort of unprecedented. Uh, the good news is, though, the, the market has really picked up quite a bit in the last couple of weeks, and we, we hope that we kind of hit that floor and we're going to see some upside from here. So, so yeah, there's lots of opportunity. There's no question about that. I think, you know, as manufacturers and processors of commodity type products sort of get these protocols sort of fully implemented, which they effectively are, but just get more used to it sort of becoming an everyday part of life on the manufacturing and processing side, I think we're going to see a lot of activity 
geared in and around that. I think you're going to see some shifting strategies. As an example, we're seeing on the you know livestock production side, folks have been quite focused on contemplating potentially vertically integrating uh, into the, pro- in the onto the packing or meat processing side. And, and, and again, that that's been in part created by the um, declining commodity prices and oversupply of live animals and the need for finding uh, offtakes for your for your products. So. So you're seeing sort of shifting strategies, again, pockets of distress, pockets of strong performance. And I think that the jury's out on sort of the export market, but we are seeing signs that, you know, the export market, particularly to China, may open up here at some point. We all thought it was going to be a huge year in 2020 for agricultural businesses, and it's really turned out to be somewhat of an effective lost year. But I, we really believe strongly that 2021 is going to be quite strong. So switching back to the food service side, you know, we are all aware there have been some bankruptcies in the food service sector, and there are also some companies that are really struggling to survive. And we also have on the other side of that distributors that have almost regained their pre-COVID sales levels. So I'm wondering if there are any brands or niche categories in the food service sector you believe would be an attractive acquisition at this point in 2020. Yes, uh, certainly on the food service side, you mentioned distribution. Uh, We're seeing a ton of consolidation in the space. We're seeing, you know, well-capitalized buyers, become much more aggressive to pursue M&A strategies to further consolidate, diversify their channels, you know, and add capabilities, value-added capabilities in some instances. So that's been a centerpiece of what we've focused on among a variety of other themes that, that we focus on. I think the restaurant side of things in terms of, you know, actual brands in the space is pretty tricky right now. We we also work with multi-unit restaurant owners and it, you know it's we're all looking to see frankly how 2021 performs. I, I do think there are some certainly opportunities to buy historically strong performing um, convenience oriented formats. I mean QSRs are doing quite well. Fast casuals doing very well. Pizza takeout and delivery categories are just going to continue to frankly probably knock the cover off the ball here. So so we think there's there's enough dislocation for both opportunistic buyers and sellers to succeed uh, in that end of the market. All right. So I want to pick up on that one point you're saying about looking at what 2021 is going to look like. So I'm wondering, what is your uh, prediction of what 2021 could look like? I understand that it's pretty difficult to look into the future like that, but do you have any insight to what might happen in the merger and acquisition uh, space in the new year? Yeah, look, we we remain um, we remain optimistic that the M and A market is like I said in the last few months it's really picked up in food and ag, and we don't see that we don't see that changing. Now, of course, it's impossible to predict the scope of any lingering COVID effects, so there's always that you know elephant in the room, if you will. But you know, look, I mean, I, I think we've all historically talked about food being a very defensive uh, and essential industry, and it's a mile wide and it's a mile deep, and there are just lots of opportunities, both healthy and distressed, in all in all markets, quite frankly. And so, you know, we're seeing really strong signs within the broader value chain. But again, there are going to be those those subsectors that you know are, are struggling. And we've talked a lot, we've talked at length about some of those. But look, uh, grocery, packaged food, retail food distribution, all strong areas. Like I said, the earlier, the, you know, the credit markets have stabilized. Um, so, so we think it, ha- it has the right makeup or composition for what will continue to be an improving and strong market in 2021, notwithstanding any unforeseen events. So I'd like to close by asking two questions, basically soliciting your advice for two groups of uh, actors in the M&A market. So the first would be, what kind of advice would you give a food business that's currently looking to acquire another smaller company? 
Sure. I mean, you know, look, we often say hire a buy side advisor. That goes without saying, right? But it has to be the right, the right fit, the right scope, you know, size of transaction complexity are all factors. But I, we always talk about how important it is to be prepared and have the, the right tools in your belt and the right advice and professionals that can enable you to navigate the complexities, not only of a transaction, but of, of a transaction in the current environment. And we talked a little bit about that earlier, which was the prolonged nature of it, the increased scope of due diligence, more complex structures, how you bridge valuation gaps. So, you know, an advisor can add a lot of value uh, in that regard. Um, so, you know, we're, of course, always emphatic about how important it is. And we always admittedly say, particularly when we're in a um, competitive situation, it's, it's not, you know, if you don't hire us, hire somebody else that's a better fit, that's fine. But have an advisor, have the professionals you need, and try to stay ahead of the curve in terms of, in terms of anticipating a number of you know hurdles and, and key dynamics that will present themselves as you navigate um, through such a process. And then on the other side, what about a food business that's looking for a buyer in the current market? What kind of advice would you give them? It, very similar advice. I mean, again, it's preparation, it's process tactics, it's preserving confidentiality. Um, you know, making sure you're you've got you know a banker that. Um, that you trust and that can help facilitate the appropriate analyses that are required. You know, having your accounting team teed up. Um, you know, if if the situation suits, um, you know, staying in front of things with a self-guide quality of earnings, things of that nature are all are all really important. And you know, I, as I alluded to earlier as well, like not every not every process is the same. And I think you know, hiring a banker that sees that and tailors something very specific to the both financial and non-financial needs of the prospective uh, client is, is is hugely important. And, and that's how you, you, you further build trust and, and credibility in the market space. So look, third parties, you know, do a lot of blocking and tackling. It, it, we enable the, you know, the, the owners to focus on running the day-to-day business, quite frankly. And that, that that's an important aspect of, of hiring an advisor. And, 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 and frankly, it sounds a little self-serving, but you, you never estimate, uh, underestimate the value of a sophisticated advisor that has strong relationships, the requisite experience and, and the reach needed to deliver an optimal an optimal result. So I think that about wraps it up for us this week on the Food Institute podcast. Once again, I'd like to thank Paul for his time today. Paul, where can our listeners go to learn more about Mesero? Sure. Uh, check us out on our website. It's uh, meserofinancial.com forward slash investment banking. So we'll definitely share the relevant links in the description of this video. And like I said, that about wraps it up for us this week on the Food Institute podcast. Remember, if you are new to the Food Institute podcast, please follow, like, and share. If you'd like to learn more about the Food Institute, please take a look at the links in our description to learn more about us and what membership could do for you and your company. So until next time, this is Chris Campbell signing off. Mm -hmm.